I think it's fair comment to say that most of the justices, at least some of the time, are pragmatists, and the way and the, their attachment to a particular political theory, uh, a, con- a constitutional interpretation theory, is um, sometimes more discussion than it is action. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from a sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued, Bob. And I write a uh, legal blog called Law Sites and another one called Media Law. And uh like to, of course, thank our sponsors, uh, SunTrust, a company that offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and law firms at suntrust.com slash law. And also Clio, the web-based practice management at goclio.com, which I happen to know is celebrating its second anniversary uh, tomorrow uh, of doing business. October 1st will mark its second year in business. Craig, the uh, 2010 to 2011 Supreme Court term is upon us, uh, with the term beginning the first Monday in October, October 4th, 2010. Uh, Any number of Controversial issues uh, could uh, be coming up on the docket. A number of cases are obviously already on the docket and more can be added still. Uh, been a number of uh, articles looking uh, ahead at the year, uh, in- including uh, some uh, from, from a couple of our guests today. Um, spotlighting some of the cases that are sure to keep the court busy and the legal community and the general public talking uh, over the coming months. Well, and Bob, there are some standout cases. Our listeners are going to enlighten us on what they think uh, the standout cases of the term are, but some possible ones include the controversy over protesting military funerals in Snyder versus Phelps, DNA testing and death penalty in Skinner versus Switzer, and violence in video games in Schwarzenegger versus entertainment merchants, and the battle over immigration reform in Chamber of Commerce versus Whiting. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll talk about the upcoming term and spotlight the big cases that our guests are are thinking are going to be making some waves as the term goes through. We have three guests joining us today who are going to help us uh, look ahead at the term, and uh, we'll introduce them. And uh, once we've introduced them, we'll get into a discussion of the cases. So Joining us first today is Wilson R. Hewn, a C. Blake McDowell Jr., the C. Blake McDowell Jr. professor and a constitutional law research fellow at the University of Akron School of Law. Uh, Professor Hewn posts regularly at the blog akronlawcafe.ohio.com, which features essays by members of the Akron Law School uh, faculty. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Hewn. Thank you very much. And Bob, our next guest is Professor Stephen H. Goldberg. He is currently teaching evidence, torts, constitutional law, and American legal history at Pace Law School. He's the author of a trial advocacy book, The First Trial, Where Do I Sit? What Do I Say?, which has been popular with the nation's law students and lawyers for more than 20 years. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Goldberg. 
Thank you. Nice to be here. And finally, joining us today is Greg Storr. Greg is a reporter for Bloomberg News and covers the Supreme Court for Bloomberg. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Greg Storr. Thanks. Happy to be here. Well, let's talk about the cases that are uh, creating some waves and, and causing some commentary. Greg, can you kind of give us an overview of what you see is coming, what you see coming for the term, and what you see as the big cases? Uh, it, it's a case that that it's a, it's a term that uh, uh, doesn't feature some of the hot button issues we've had in previous terms. We don't have abortion. We don't have campaign finance yet. Uh, we do have a couple of very interesting First Amendment cases, uh, including one involving a protest at a military funeral and another one involving uh, violent video games and a ban on purchases by minors. Uh, there are a number of big business cases, uh, including the Arizona immigration case that, that you mentioned that could also have implications for the, the uh, uh, more widely publicized law in Arizona, more recent law. Uh, that allows local police to arrest uh, people who might be illegal immigrants. Uh, and, of course, it's the first term for uh, new justice Elena Kagan, although as of now she is recusing herself from about half the cases uh, because of, of her work as U.S. Solicitor General. And uh, we want to talk about more, more about some of these cases, but we wanted to hear from, from our other guests on what they saw as perhaps kind of the, the big issues coming down the pike. Uh, uh, Will Hewn, how about you? What, what are you uh, looking forward to in this coming term? Well, Greg's identified, the uh, I think, the most exciting cases. Um, there's three other cases, though, uh, that haven't been mentioned yet uh, that perhaps don't get the blood boiling, but it's, uh, they're going to be very closely watched uh, in the business community and also for consumers. Um, these are the preemption cases, uh, Bruzewitz versus Wyeth, Williamson versus Mazda, and AT&T versus uh, Concepcion. Uh, these are cases in which uh, the court is going to decide whether or not consumers can bring actions against manufacturers, or, or in one case against a, um, a telephone company, uh, or whether those lawsuits are going to be barred by uh, federal statutes and federal schemes of regulation that uh, perhaps uh, preempt the states from holding the manufacturers or the companies uh, liable for the injuries or for the fraud uh, that uh, other you know state juries otherwise would hold them guilty of. Professor Goldberg, let's uh, let's hear from you about what you see as the exciting cases coming up this term. Well, I don't have anything to add about the exciting cases. I I think uh, a couple of things that aren't exciting cases are interesting about this coming term. One of them is that the court continues to shrink its docket. Pretty soon, you'll never have this conversation because they won't have any cases at all. That may be a bit of an overstatement, but the courts, uh, the cases, the number of cases the court takes and therefore the kinds of things they're willing to talk about seems to be continually reduced. The other thing is you have, uh, even though Kagan will not be involved in a lot of the cases, you have a, a court that is more different this year then it's been in quite a while. You have the one person, Justice Sotomayor, who's only been there for one year, and Justice Kagan, who's new. And this is a committee of nine people. Uh, it's a law committee, but it's a committee nevertheless. And the, how that interaction works is something that uh, I think in you, in terms of reading how the discussion goes in the cases, um, will be interesting in terms of trying to figure out where the court's going to be over the next short term, at least. And of course, it's the first time we'll have three women uh, justices uh, sitting. I mean, it, 
what do you think, Stephen Goldberg? Is are we likely to even begin to see the impact of that during this term, or, or will it take some time to kind of uh, for for the uh, impact of that to filter its way through? Uh, I I think you'll see the impact, but I'm not sure that I'd agree that the impact is because they're women. Anytime you have new voices on the court, that makes a difference. Um, whether whether that difference will be one that's uh, harmonious because there are three women is something I don't think I'd sign on to. Well, Professor Hewn, what, uh, where do you see the decisions coming down this term? And we've identified some of these cases now. How do you think the Supreme Court's going to decide? Let's, let's uh, take a look at the military funeral case. Where, you know, can you identify the issues for us in that case, and where do you think the court's going to come? Obviously, it's a First Amendment issue. Sure, I can identify the issues. Uh, uh, I've been unable to uh, make up my own mind. Uh, do you know a, another organization, one of the organizations that wrote an amicus brief in this case, uh, also uh, couldn't make up its mind, has submitted a brief in support of neither party, and that was the, uh, the Anti-Defamation League. that uh, has uh, absolutely a wonderful history of uh, both standing up against uh, discrimination but also standing up for the First Amendment. And they can't decide whether they love the First Amendment more or whether they hate hate speech more. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's a tough case. These uh, protesters are doing something that I think most people regard as absolutely despicable. They target military families whose children have died in Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, they come to these people's towns. They travel from Topeka, in this case, uh, to uh, Maryland, and uh, protest uh, the funeral, uh, raising their particular issues, which are uh, really kind of unsavory anyway. They're anti-Catholic. And uh, they are also anti-gay, and uh, they have some theory that, you know, America is being punished uh, for its sins. Uh, these servicemen died because America is too tolerant of homosexuality. Well, in any case, uh, the First Amendment is there to protect uh, everybody. It's there to protect people with whom we disagree. We, we know that. Um, but the, the key, there's two key facts in this case, and I, I think it's going to turn on which fact the Supreme Court thinks is more important. Fact number one, these people uh, allegedly stood more than a 1,000 feet from the church, so they weren't all that close, and a claim for intentional infliction of emotional distress and, uh, uh, you know, the consequent uh, strength of the state's interest in protecting the family against an invasion of seclusion uh, is really not very strong in this case. Uh, On the other hand, even though they were a 1,000 feet away, uh, they traveled more than a 1,000 miles (laughs) Uh, to intrude on this family. They, they target these families. And many of the statements, although many of them are kind of general, directed at the Roman Catholic Church in general, for example, some of them, some of the signs, some of the statements made afterwards on the Internet by the, uh, by the protesters, uh, are directed at the family. And I think just as with those of us who are on the fence about this, uh, those two facts, uh, each one pointing in a different direction, uh, I think are going to be the fulcrum on which the decision rests. This is Greg Storr. If, if I could just yeah, go ahead, ch- chime in, I, th- I think one issue that the court will will have to struggle with here uh, is that uh, they're not going to want to create an exception to the First Amendment uh, for especially obnoxious speech. Uh, one of the things that makes this case so so compelling is, of course, the facts and and the broad uh, disagreement with uh, with the message by the protesters. Uh, 
But if the Supreme Court is going to hinge its opinion in part on uh, how offensive that message was, uh, it's going to have to it's going to have to walk kind of a of a thin line there. That would certainly be a troubling precedent. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that that well, if the, if the court actually said the reason that uh, you can't do this is because it's really, really ugly speech would fly in the face of everything the court's ever done with respect to First Amendment. If It seems to me that uh, the, only, uh, the only way the court could prohibit this was would somehow try and make the cemetery into a house, and it seems to me that's not a very good analogy. Um, other than that, I mean, we have, you know, in a way, the First Amendment uh, law is a kind of a mess because even the greatest defenders of the First Amendment, everybody's got something they'd like to suppress if they could. This is probably as good a case for that idea as any, and those are the ones that need protection the most. What about the other uh, First Amendment case that's coming up this this term? Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are others, but the the Schwarzenegger uh, versus Entertainment Merchants uh, Association case that that deals with uh, a California law prohibiting the sale of, uh, of violent video games. Uh, Greg, do you have any? Uh, can you give us some background on that? Well, this is a, law, a California law. Um, that uh, uh, and the scope of it may be a little bit in, in dispute. Uh, it certainly bans minors from bu- from buying violent video games uh, in stores uh, and by ma- through mail order. Whether it does via bans them as well via the internet uh, may be a matter of, of dispute. Uh, in any event, laws like this have cropped up around the country, and uh, in every case, courts have struck them down. As did the lower court in this case. The the uh, federal appeals court in in California, and uh, the question uh, one question in the case is why would the Supreme Court agree to hear this case? Normally, the Supreme Court or often the Supreme Court won't get involved unless lower courts are in in disagreement. Uh, here, uh, the court, notwithstanding the absence of a disagreement, decided that they did want did want to jump in, and so uh, one can at least speculate that the court might be trying to, to come up with a way. Uh, to uphold this law. So it's going to be a, a very interesting case. It, it's very interesting. It comes on the heels of United States versus Stevens last term, uh, the dogfighting video case, where the Supreme Court took a very um, conservative approach uh, to uh, finding new unprotected categories of speech. They essentially said, we're not going to balance uh, the value of the speech. We're not going to look at how harmful or how disgusting uh, this speech is. Uh, the only consideration in deciding whether it's utterly unprotected is whether it is a category that has been historically unprotected. Historically unprotected. So that, that cuts out a, a large part of uh, the governor's and the state's argument that uh, we can ban the speech because it's really kind of uh, useless, it's, it's of low value. Um, uh, that means that if this law is going to get upheld, it's going to face strict scrutiny, and that's a that's a very high barrier, and of course, it couldn't pass that barrier in the lower courts. And this is Steve. I, I'm in agreement. I have no idea why they took this case, um, unless they're going to do something. And it's hard to imagine what they could do that would change the way these cases have come out uh, throughout the courts. It's, uh, 
kind of an interesting mystery. It would certainly be a more sweeping ruling uh, if the court were to strike down this law, or at least it would uh, uh, be much more potentially groundbreaking because the court would uh, likely be carving out a new category uh, of speech uh, that doesn't have have uh, as much First Amendment protection as other speech. And that would be a little bit strange for a court to... That has uh, that an RAV tried to move away from the categorical approach to speech in, in the first place. Uh, it would be interesting if they move that direction. There's also a case that's pending that's garnered an awful lot of media attention and has kind of galvanized people around the country with the Legal Arizona Workers Act and the case that comes with um, Chamber of Commerce versus Whiting, the e verification, and so forth. Uh, Professor Goldberg, can you give us a little bit of history on that and kind of frame it for us? Well, I don't know if I can frame it. I mean, the 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 law the the prop. There's a couple of problems, and in some sense, it's not so much immigration as it's been politically interesting, but it's interesting in terms of who controls the law with respect to. Immigration, and I think to, there's two ways to look at this case. One is that it's going to tell you something about businesses and uh, their requirement of of looking at the at the federal database. But uh, the other question involved is whether state how much states can get involved in the immigration business at all, um, and that raises an interesting question of constitutional interpretation and an interesting question of preemption, which I assume most people think is going to come up in the case uh, in the Arizona law that deals with uh, uh, whether police can uh, ask uh, somebody on the street for an identification to prove they're a citizen. I, I agree that uh, that second Arizona law, the one that, that has received much of the attention of the news, is uh, the one that we're kind of waiting for. This case is a little odd, too, because there is a specific express preemption provision in the federal statute uh, that received a very literal uh, interpretation in the lower courts and uh, that allowed this law uh, not to be, this state law, not to be preempted. Uh, we're not going to have um, that, uh, uh, that kind of uh, permission from the federal government in the case dealing with uh, police stop and, and uh, uh, requesting people's immigration papers. It's actually another immigration case uh, that, Will, that I know you wrote about in your blog post uh, brings raises some equal protection issues. Uh, Flores Villar, Villar, if I'm saying that, probably I, I, mangling I that correct. horribly. Flores, Flores Villar, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I'm not sure what the uh, impact of that case uh, in the broader scheme of things is. But what, what? Tell us a little bit about that case. Well, uh, you know, this case really builds upon an earlier case, uh, Nguyen versus INS, that came down a few years ago. And the basic problem is, is that under federal law, if a person is born in another country and one of their parents is an American and the other person is, say, a citizen of that country where the child is born, it makes a difference whether the American parent is a man or a woman. If it's a mother who gives birth in another country... It's relatively easy for that child, an American mother who gives birth in another country, it's relatively easy for that child to claim American citizenship. Um, if it is an American father and the child is born in another country, there are various 
hoops and barriers that are erected under the immigration law, some of them physically impossible, <laughs> as in this case, to, to uh, uh, fulfill, uh, that uh, stand in the way of that child of an American father um, becoming a U.S. citizen. So uh, both the, uh, in the prior case, uh, the Supreme Court upheld, upheld those additional restrictions that uh, prevented uh, a child from being legitimated and therefore becoming a U.S. citizen, uh, and uh, they've accepted uh, this case as well. Uh, this um, uh, would-be American citizen also lost in the courts below uh, based upon that prior decision, and we'll see whether the Supreme Court's willing to, to revisit that. Uh, it's an interesting case, in my opinion, because it may reflect, it, it, it's possible that it reflects uh, a kind of bias um, about, uh, you know, that men can go into different countries and have plenty of children, and they aren't going to be American citizens, but uh, if a woman has a child born abroad, an American woman, well, then we'll welcome that child as an American. It's a, it, You see, it, it could reflect some uh, outdated stereotypes. That's why I'm kind of... I'm not a big proponent of that original case, the Nguyen case. Gentlemen, we need to take a quick break. When we return here, we'll talk more about the upcoming Supreme Court term. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all the great legal podcasts. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE. Click on it and start listening. Or go to westlegaledcenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're talking about the about-to-begin Supreme Court term with our guests, uh, Professor William R. Hune of the University of Akron School of Law, Professor Stephen H. Goldberg uh, at uh, the Pace uh, Law School, and Greg Storr uh, covers the Supreme Court for Bloomberg News. Uh, and I wanted to come back to uh, to something, uh, Greg, uh, you talked about right at, 
at the outset, which are the the the, the preemption cases that are coming up uh, this term. Uh, there are a couple of different cases dealing with different uh, aspects of, of preemption. Given uh, the court's record over the last couple of years, this is a, an issue they've they've dealt with uh, a number of times in, in past years. Uh, is it going to be a, a bad year for, for tort, tort lawyers <laughs> in the United States this year? Well, uh, start with the, 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 the starting point that tort lawyers generally have a tough time at the Supreme Court. Uh, it's a court that is very skeptical of what they perceive as lawyer-driven litigation. That said, the truth is the last couple big preemption cases, um, the, the, the plaintiff side has pulled out somewhat surprising victories, and probably the one that got the most attention was one involving a woman who, who took um, a drug that uh, caused her to lose part of her arm. She had to have her arm amputated. And the Supreme Court said they, that she could sue the drug company uh, for not having a better warning on its label, even though the FDA had approved that label. So uh, the, the couple preemption cases that they have this term are, are certainly not things where you, you know in advance how they're going to come out. Do you see, uh, do any of you see the Proposition 8 in California on the same-sex marriage issues making its way to the Supreme Court this term? I, I, this is Greg again. Um, I, I don't see it coming to this term uh, on the merits. Uh, one could imagine an emergency motion that that could get there, but because it's still at the the, the trial court level right now, uh, the, the timing looks much better for the for the following term. I, I think that the this Steve. I think the uh, whether the Prop Eight case makes it to the Supreme Court um, will give a kind of an interesting look at how this court might deal with the subject. There's a, actually a case coming out of Massachusetts that they could decide more narrowly uh, that might be a case they would take in, in a, as a way to avoid dealing with a Prop 8 case. I don't know about this term, but next term. Uh, the Massachusetts case uh, deals with whether a couple, the couple that is married in Massachusetts uh, can be denied federal benefits that a heterosexual couple would be able to have. And that's the kind of equal protection case that the court could decide in favor of the same-sex couple that would be a walk in a direction with respect to benefits, but that would not put the court in a position where it had to deal with the hard question. So it might prefer that case and take that one first. What about on the... Uh, uh uh, on the on the criminal uh, criminal law side of things, um, I, I know there's a, a, a couple of cases that the uh, court has uh, put on its docket uh, dealing with uh, uh, search, uh, of course, and and, uh, and and prisoners' rights. Um, Professor Hune, is uh, any of those cases uh, stand out to you, or Professor Goldberg? Uh, let me ask either of you on that. Well, the, the uh, DNA case, of course, uh, has captured everybody's attention, uh, and uh, we're waiting to see. Uh, the, the, the larger question that, that's involved in that, and I'm not a specialist in either the death penalty area um, or uh, most of the Bill of Rights issues with, with criminal cases, but um, I did do a fair amount with scientific evidence, and the uh, real question that arises with, with all of these new forms of evidence is are we going to adjust our criminal justice system to get at the truth? Or are we going to retain kind of the tried and true 
uh, methods and procedures that we've been following for generations or centuries, uh, procedures that today may actually interfere with uh, determining who's innocent and who's guilty. When do you think we're going to be seeing a an electronic discovery case come? There have been some pretty significant decisions out of the appellate court, uh, the federal appellate courts, uh, especially in dealing with sanctions. The one in San Diego that dished out about a million dollars in sanctions and reported eight attorneys to the state bar. Um, when, when do you see the Supreme Court picking up that kind of an issue? One of the things about the Supreme Court is that technology tends to befuddle them almost irrespective of the subject matter. Uh, I don't care if you're talking about the Internet or any other technologies. The courts, all of the things we knew about how information moved and how easy it was and how accessible it was is something that is being turned upside down by technology. And I think the court is in the same position as much of societies. It's not exactly sure how to keep up with it intellectually in terms of what you should and shouldn't be able to do. And so I suspect they will not deal with a case like that until they have to. Well, that uh, those remarks are very pertinent as well to uh, the uh, violent video game case. Uh, you know, our children can now get access to these just by playing online, and they can get a freemium if they play long enough, and that freemium may be a, a violent video game. In other words, they can acquire this uh, without ever having to put in a credit card number that would of course, be some indication that perhaps they're over 18. Um, and uh, the, the easy access of children uh, to pornography, but, you know, to, to violence as well, uh, is the reason that the Supreme Court has got to uh, begin to adjust uh, some of its traditional views. It, it's just a lot easier for children to be exposed to this material than it used to be. It's got a quick, quick question. I'm wondering whether any of you have read uh, Justice Breyer's uh, new book, uh, and if so, uh, what what you make of it, and uh, you know what do you, what do you think it says about the court? I, I have read it. It, it, it is uh, uh, it, it, it feels as if it's an attempt by Justice Breyer to uh, stake out uh, kind of an alternative to originalism for the for the moderate to, to liberal members of the court. Um, he, he spends a fair amount of time uh, explaining why, in his view, originalism uh, isn't the best approach and, and how a much more pragmatic approach that focuses on, on the purpose that, that uh, both constitutional and statutory provisions have and that focuses on the consequences of, of particular uh, rulings, that that, in his mind, is a much, much better approach. So uh, it, it, we'll, we'll see how many people coalesce around it, but it at least is an effort on his part uh, to provide an alternative uh, way of uh, approaching the law. Justice Souter attempted the same thing in his commencement speech at Harvard uh, this year, attempting to respond to, uh, in that case, the textualist, the, the, the strict constructionist uh, approach that can yield uh, results that um, are really very unfair and sad uh, if uh, you know contemporary situations, conditions, consequences are not taken into account. I think one of the most interesting things about Justice Breyer's book is that it's on this issue of how ought the court interpret the Constitution is, I suppose, the biggest boom industry in legal academia in terms of constitutional law, but it wasn't always that way. I mean, the fact is that until Justice Scalia started to 
push publicly, first textualism and then the original intent, a lot of this stuff was stuff that people like Will and I who teach constitutional law were interested in, and almost nobody else was. And it has, I think it's fair to say, now uh, Justice Scalia has been very, and those who agree with him have been very good at pushing what, at least when they started to push it, was a relatively obscure idea. And uh, I think Justice Breyer is uh, saying to himself, gee, nobody else is talking about this who can be heard. They, uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Breyer, a couple of years ago, um, had essentially the same debate um, in a uh, joint appearance between uh, that was uh, sponsored by the American Constitution Society and the Federal Society. And that, that kind of theoretical debate is... Uh, is one that uh, uh, people try to coalesce around. Interestingly enough, I think it's fair comment to say that most of the justices, at least some of the time, are pragmatists, and the way and the their attachment to a particular political theory, uh, a, con- a constitutional interpretation theory, is. Um, Sometimes more discussion than it is action. This is a this is at the core of the battle um, for the interpretation of the law, the proper interpretation of law that occurred throughout the 20th century, uh, with Learned Hand and Benjamin Cardozo, Louis Brandeis, Oliver Wendell Holmes on one side of the debate, pushing for pragmatism, pushing for consideration of how people are actually going to be affected by interpretations of the law, and of course they were met with uh, resistance. A hand wasn't on the Supreme Court, the other three were, uh, but it took until uh, 1937 for the log jam to break, and really until the 1950s and 1960s uh, for that pragmatist approach to um, uh, win the consistent majority of the votes in the Supreme Court. Well, gentlemen, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up, get your final thoughts, as well as your contact information. So let's start with um, Steve and, and wrap up with you, and then we'll move on to the other guests. Well, I, I think that the term is, uh, as I think it was Greg who said at the beginning, um, probably will not have as much public pizzazz as some terms have had. Um, in terms of the work of the court and watching how it goes, I think it um, reading how it is the decisions are made rather than exactly what the result is uh, might be fascinating this year. Uh, I'm at Pace Law School. Um, I have an uh, email address, sgoldberg at law.pace.edu. Great. And Greg? Well, I, I would certainly certainly agree with that and, and uh, add that it's often the case that at the beginning of the year, uh, Supreme Court term doesn't look like it has that much excitement, but uh, there's time for the justices to add more cases. There are certainly a few that are lurking out there that could be very interesting, and I, I, I suspect that by the end of the year, we're going to have an awful lot to talk about. Great. And Greg, how can our listeners reach you? Greg Store at Bloomberg News. Uh, email address is G-S-T-O-H-R at Bloomberg, B-L-O-O-M-B-E-R-G. Net. And finally, let's uh, end up with Professor Wilson and get your summary and your contact information. The uh, uh, Supreme Court um, term doesn't, I, I agree, it doesn't look very exciting now. 
Uh, the key, as always, uh, is going to be who can win over Justice Kennedy in the key battles, uh, which uh, will the conservative wing or the liberal wing uh, gather his support. Uh, my contact information is uh, whewn at uakron.edu, University of Akron, and uh, people, if they wish, can uh, log on to uh, uh, the uh, Akron Law Cafe and post a comment uh, if they agree or disagree with any of my opinions there. Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for participating in our program. And, Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Craig, let me add my thanks to our guests for taking the time to be with us today and sharing their thoughts on the upcoming Supreme Court term. And let me also add a reminder to our listeners that they can uh, actually get CLE credit for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer by going to LegalTalkNetwork.com and clicking on the West Legal Ed Center icon that they find there. And don't forget that along with uh, our show, all of the Lawyer to Lawyer shows are available on uh, iTunes and all Legal Talk Networks as well. We'll see you again next week. See you next week. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.